Scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Lori. We have been working our way through Mark, and we're only in our second week. And I will tell you, I'm excited about today's message. This is the most important message that we are going to do out of Mark up until this point. (laughs) Next week will be the most important message. Okay, so you get the drift, all right? By the end of this series, it's going to be just awesome. We have titled this this, uh, walk through the book of Mark that we're going to do for about 13 months. We've titled it, The Cross is the Way of Life. The cross is the way of life because everything does point to the cross in the gospel of Mark. I want to talk a little bit more, just a little bit of, by way of introduction. We did some of that last week. I'll do a little bit more again today. I want to talk about the arrangement of the narrative of Mark and, and in particular and in general just about the gospels. Uh, we need to understand that uh, when we say the gospel, when we're talking about one of these documents, one of these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we're actually talking about a particular genre of literature. Uh, it contains the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's also known as a particular genre of scripture. And, it's writ- and as such, it's written in a particular way. Uh, we need to understand that the gospel narratives of Jesus are not just raw footage of Jesus' life. It's not everything that, that happened to Jesus. That there's a particular reason that, they, that each gospel is arranged in its particular way. Everything in each gospel is true, but each gospel writer wanted to emphasize certain things in particular and and certain details in particular, and that's important to help you understand as you work your way through any of the four gospels. We need you to know that the four gospels are completely unified in their theology, but there is some diversity in their details and their emphases. And so, for instance, um, in Luke, what you might be able to say about Luke is that he really emphasizes how Jesus just seems to turn everything upside down. The social structures are different. Uh, people look at things uh, uh, that, they, that they see as familiar, and now they look at them through the eyes of Jesus in a completely different way, in a way that they never would have considered before. You get to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is what you might call extremely Jewish. There's a great emphasis, a great emphasis on the Old Testament. It's... it's um, it's, it's, the Old Testament is presented kind of in your face in Matthew, whereas in Mark, it's more illusions and shadows of the Old Testament. But Matthew is very Jewish because he's writing a Jewish audience and he wants them to know he is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. In the book of John, John just tells us in, at the very end of the book, he says, these things I have written, lots of other things happen in the life of Jesus, he says. But these things I have written specifically so that you might believe that he is the Christ the son of the living God. That's why I wrote this. And John's gospel was really written to everyone, to anyone who would read it. There was, there was no specific type of audience. Now Mark is writing in this highly Romanized context. And so there's some things that he needs to do and is doing as a result of that. And his gospel really has two emphases that, we, that we're just gonna keep pounding 
throughout these next 13 or 14 months. Number one, he presents Christ as the true king and savior. He is the true Lord. In, in Mark chapter eight, when we get there, you'll see that Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he says, hey, who does everybody say I am? And they say, well, they, they think you're Elijah, they think you're John, they think you're one of the prophets. And then he t- says to his disciples, he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Peter has a great, he has the exact right answer. You're the, you're the one, you're the Lord. You're the creator, you are the king. At the end of Mark, someday we'll get there. At the end of Mark, Jesus is on the cross and he dies. And there's a Roman centurion who's been there the whole time and he's seen the whole thing. And when Jesus died, taking everything into account, what had happened to Jesus and, and the testimony of Jesus, he just looks at Jesus and he says, surely this man was the son of God. Surely. And so he's presented as true king and savior. The second thing though that Mark presents us with is the high cost of discipleship. Both of these emphases look at the cross. The king had to go to the cross in order to be a true servant king. He had to go to the cross in order to save his people, to to, um, redeem his people as a servant king. He had to do that. But also, we look at the cross and we recognize that there's a high cost, not only to what Jesus did, but also a high cost to our call as his disciples as well. And so again, we look at like Mark chapter 8, Verse 34, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, listen, you need to understand that if anyone is going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's, that's a discipleship of cost. Um, right before that, the verse before that, he's rebuking, by the way, this is in the wake of Peter giving the, the $64,000 answer, you are the Christ, and then Peter does something kind of dumb like he does during the Gospels quite often. He's trying to rebuke Jesus about something and Jesus just looks at him in verse 33 and he says, Peter, here's your problem. You are not thinking about the things of God, but rather you're thinking about the things of man. Again, in other words, there's going to be a high cost to this discipleship. And then again, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, listen, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a, this is a high cost discipleship. And so last week we looked at the first 11 verses and it was the fulfillment of God's promises were just beginning because Jesus was coming and we saw that John comes to prepare the way for Jesus and then Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on Jesus as a sign of the blessing of, of, of the Trinity, of the Father and then the Father says, the, the heavens are torn open and, and the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. He gives His love and approval for Jesus, which becomes an interesting point as we get started. Let me reread what Lori um, read, and then I'll t- explain to you how we're going to work our way through these four very pregnant verses. So verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the promises of God are being fulfilled. Just what we talked about last week. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's two things, two major areas we're going to look at today. In verses 12 and 13, we're going to look at the humanity and temptation of Jesus. And that, of course, leads to our humanity and temptation 
And then the second thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at the gospel, the good news of God through Jesus Christ as defined by the kingdom of God, repent and believe. And here's the big idea for today. The big idea is that the gospel is good news, but probably not the way you and I would think of good news. This is good news, but when we think of good news, we're going to think of of good news from our perspective and our perception and our understanding of what we might uh, enjoy good news to be. But Jesus brings a news that is good, but it's, it's vastly different than the way we might think of it. And, and I think this is good because we need to be stretched and challenged. We just do. We need to be stretched and challenged. I think it's really important for us to understand that, that Jesus is never one-dimensional, although many of us try to make him one-dimensional. You know, Jesus does adapt to us. Jesus does, to some degree, adapt to you and I. He meets us where we are. He comes to us right where we are and that's where he meets us and that's where he calls us. He does adapt to us so that we might hear him. But he never leaves us there. He also challenges us. And so the person who who sees Jesus as just this loving Savior who only adapts, what you have is a Savior who is is an excuse-making pushover who will never help you develop character. But you need to understand that if you, have a, if you have a Savior, a Jesus, who's also one dimension, who only challenges, what you have then is a, task, is, is, a, is a Savior who's nothing but a harsh taskmaster. And Jesus is both. Jesus has a heart that loves us, a heart of compassion, a heart of empathy, a heart of understanding. But he also has a heart that says, this is not what God intended for you. And I'm here to fill you with my spirit and teach you and direct you and, and mold your character into what? Paul tells us in Romans, into my image. You are going to be conformed into my image. That means you and I cannot stay where we are. So he both adapts and he challenges us. And so we look at these first two verses where we see Jesus' humiliation, uh, I'm sorry, humanity and temptation. And I want you to notice this amazing paradox between verse 11, the last verse we looked at last week, and verse 12. This is fa- I think this is fascinating. We miss this by breaking things up. Verse 11 says that the father looked down and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, I love my son and I approve of my son. And then what's the next line? Immediately, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. You and I are pretty sure. In fact, some of us are very sure that if God loves us and he's pleased with us, he's never going to drive us out somewhere where it's unpleasant, where there might be pain and suffering and challenges. We're sure that if God is pleased with us, he's never going to do anything in our lives that's going to create any sort of tension in our lives. And yet that's exactly what happens here. But also think about it. Isn't this kind of true to life as well? I mean, I I always feel like, you know, when I have kind of a mountaintop experience, I really do. I just start looking over my shoulder because I figure that the valley's coming. How many of us, though, think, I'm just going to live my life in the mountaintops, man. Mountaintop all the time. Been watching Oprah. I know how to do that. Sorry. But yeah, life is not all these mountaintops. And you know what? God's involved in that. 
God is in, involved in that. But again, I, I think it's interesting because Mark, just like last week's passage, Mark also, in, in giving us this story the way he does, he's drawing our attention once again back to Genesis and creation, the creation story, and the parallels between the Hebrew Scriptures and Jesus' life. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God is moving over the water, and the history of the world is launched. And then right after that, what happens? Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's a disaster. Well, here, the Spirit moves over Jesus. The dove comes, and Jesus' ministry is launched. And what happens? Satan comes and tempts Jesus as well. But the results are much different. So already, we're starting to see this, this comparison that Mark alludes to all the time between Jesus and Adam. And we need to be able to see that. So there's, there's three things that'll just help us get started with these two verses here. First, I, I think Mark reminds us that, that G, though Jesus is the Son of God, with this little part about going out to be tempted, he reminds us that Jesus is also human as well. We talked about that last week, fully God and fully human. He says, hey, look, in his humanity, he had to go out into the wilderness and he had to be tempted by Satan. In other words, in his humanity, he still goes through what we go through. Hebrews chapter 4, the author writes this, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the reason for that is this next verse, which we often forget, which is so important. Let us then, because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, the power to help us in our time of need. So Jesus knows. And second of all, you need to understand, Mark treats Satan as real. You know why Mark treats Satan as real? It's not a trick question. Because he is real. Because he is real. There's so many people. I know this is a shock to our modern, western, scientific, intelligent mind. Oh, no, it's just a myth. No, 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 no. Satan is real. That, That great theologian, Verbal Kint, once said, the greatest trick the devil ever played was making people believe that he didn't exist. And he's done that to many people today, unfortunately. If you don't know you're being attacked, you're in big trouble, right? So Mark treats Satan as real. And then third, again, pointing back to the very beginning, you and I, and I've had this conversation with myself before, so I know you probably have too because the human condition is very similar in all of us. We look at Adam and Eve and we look at that that mess that they created in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and we go, why were they so stupid? Why did they do that to us? I'll tell you what, if I had been in that garden, I would have withstood the, the temptation. No, 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 no. You know that that's not true. And here's why we know that's not true. Here's why we know that Satan's lies are still alive and real even in our hearts today. Here's why we know. Because you and I, even though we know Christ, we still have yet to fully turn over every last speck of our life to God, right? There's something in all of us that we're holding back. Every one of us. I'm a pastor. I'm not holding it. Oh, come on. Ask my wife. There's stuff I'm holding back. 
We still trust Satan sometimes more than we trust God. So for us to come and judge Adam and Eve is just wrong. Just because we're 4,000 years or whatever it is removed from men doesn't make us smarter or tougher or stronger. And so be very, very careful about judging Adam and Eve. And, and all of this is happening. Jesus is out there in the wilderness being tempted by Satan because the Holy Spirit drove him out there. Drove, drove. The Greek word is ekbali. It literally means to cast out. In other words, this was necessary to Jesus' ministry preparation. This whole thing was necessary to the preparation of his ministry. And that means it also shows the necessity of our challenges and our troubles in life. You see, again, our, our goal, literally our goal is to just abolish all suffering and unpleasantness. The whole idea behind the uh, scientific revolution and the, and, the, and the industrial, all of that stuff, all the, the age of reason and rationality, and all that stuff that happened 16th century and 18th century, the whole idea behind that was because we were going to solve every problem and have every answer. And we would never have to suffer again. How's that been working out for us? It doesn't work. But that's still our goal. Our goal is to figure out how to, how to just be happy and not suffering our entire lives. But that's not God's goal. God's goal is that you and I would be in relationship with him and we would know him and love him and revere him and worship him as we're going through these things. And when suffering and pain and trouble comes, it's interesting to me that very often we ask God, we say, why, God, why, why am I going through this? Why, you, why, why, must, why is this happening to me? And yet Jesus went for 40 days. Think about it that way. Then there's, then there's those times where we do, where at least we're a little bit more honest, where we say, okay, I'm going through all this junk. Where did I go wrong? That's not a bad question to ask. Because maybe, maybe your troubles are the result of some bad decisions or behaviors that, that you did or made. Maybe that's true, but not always. Uh, one pastor writes that there's 15 different reasons why we suffer, and only one of them has to do directly with our sin. <laughs> Many different reasons why we encounter suffering in life. Most of them are not under our control, but God is involved in every single one of them. He either causes it or allows it for some reason in order to give Him glory and, and, and for our good. So when you're in the midst of something bad and you say, what did I do? Maybe you didn't do anything. Maybe this is just the, the undulations now of life that you're going through. Look at it this way. What exactly did Jesus do wrong that he had to go out to this unpleasantness? Did he do anything wrong? And the answer is nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. This is just a part of life, especially and specifically a part of the life of faith. James comes along. And, and he says at the beginning of his letter, he says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. That word perseverance can mean endurance, patience, steadfastness, or perseverance. So he says, Consider it all joy, not if, but when. These trials, challenges, sufferings, tribulations. And by the way, he writes this in the context, James writes this in the context of temptation. So consider it all joy even when temptation comes because the testing of your faith is going to develop character in you. It's going to conform you to the image of Christ, which is exactly what we want. It's kind of like, as my friend Tom Schrader says, it's kind of like spiritual aerobics. 
And so Jesus sees, us, sees this as something that qualifies us to be human, and he was out there for 40 days being tempted. Wow, that's a long time. We don't want, I don't ever want temptation to come. My life just seems to go a lot smoother when temptation doesn't come. But what if God wants us stronger? Temptation's gonna come. It's just, by the way, it's a part of life. And again, if you read further in James, you see that God never tempts us. He might allow us to be in situations or even cause us sometimes to be in situations where we will be tempted, but he, never ca- he is never the cause of temptation. James tells us that we are tempted when our desires get a hold of us and start to run away from us and we just follow them. That's what he tells us. We're the problem. We are the problem. And so temptation is gonna always come. Now, how was Jesus tempted? Many of the same ways that you and I are tempted. First of all, he was tempted with pleasing his flesh. He was tempted with food. I will just tell you, one of, one of my greatest challenges in life, one of my greatest challenges is just eating all the time. I like food. It brings my flesh great pleasure. I, I'm, I'm wondering if I shouldn't cut my sermon down today because I'm going to Los Taquitos this afternoon for Mexican food, and I can't wait, man. I'm telling you. So Satan tempts him with food, and then he tempts him with power. We're susceptible to that, too, power. We want power. And then he also tempts him with pride. He comes along and he says, you can be the greatest. The, the, you can be the superior being. But, but here's, here's what we have to see that isn't explicitly said in the text. By the way, I'm getting this from Matthew and Luke, what he's actually tempted with. We know that from his, their accounts of this. But what isn't explicitly said there is Satan says, I'm, I'm going to make you the most supreme being. But what he doesn't say is in my kingdom. Think about that. That's no big deal, really. Because Jesus is the supreme king in the kingdom of God already. Again, looking back to the creation story, when Satan comes to the woman and says, you need to eat this fruit because when you eat it, you're going to be like God. And what the woman forgot is that God had already created her in his image and likeness. He was already there. Unlike Jesus, she didn't remember what what God has already given her and told her. And you and I need to remember what God has given us and told us. In fact, again, how does Jesus battle this temptation? Again, from Luke and Mark, we know that he battled it in two ways. Number one, he stood on God's word. And number two, he prayed. In other words, he was in relationship with God. He was constantly pursuing God. And so let me talk a little bit about that word first. Sometimes in an effort to exalt the gospel, you and I, uh, which is not a bad thing to exalt the gospel, sometimes we inadvertently diminish the role that God's word must play in our lives when challenges come. But one of the challenges we have with God's word, and I had this challenge for a number of years as well, is, is um, when I was in a certain life situation, I would go to the Bible and go, and go to the index and say, okay, wh- what does it say I'm supposed to do about when my wife is not behaving well, all right? What does it say about my boss that I don't like? What, what, what does it say about all these life contexts that I find myself in? Where's the section on that? And that's not what the Bible does. The Bible, when we come to it for guidance or answers, mostly instead of doing that for us, what the Bible does is it says, you need to be uh, of the type of person who has the character to be able to discern the will and wisdom of God. That's what it says. You need to be this type of person, like Joseph, who discerns the will and wisdom of God because they're in relationship with God and they understand that. And we don't like that, of course, because we're going, well, that's going to take some time. I need this tomorrow morning. 
Well, if you don't start now, you're not going to have it for next year or the year after or the year after. But you're right, it is going to take some time. We need, to, we need to be immersed in God's word and in prayer and, and, and in community. That's, that's how this is done. But instead, here's what we want. We want a formula. We want a prescription. We want six steps to that and four steps to that. Here's one formula I found in the Bible. There is a formula that I found in the Bible. It's at the end of 1 P- uh, not 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. For those of you that want a formula, there's your formula. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. What's the problem now? Well, we've got to define those three words, right? <laughs> and guess where that takes us? It takes us to the development of our character to be the type of person that knows how to discern God's will and wisdom. There is no, again, there's no four steps to godliness in the Bible. God says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Okay, that's a step. It's a long step because he says it's just the beginning. So we have to define godliness and figure that out. Then there's contentment. You know what Paul says about contentment at the end of Philippians? He says, I have learned contentment. Well, why do I have to learn it? Why can't I just have it? Aren't there three steps to a contented life? No, there's many steps to that. You want to be patient? You're going to be put in situations where you're required to be patient. You want to be content? You're going to be put in situations where you're required to be content. You want perseverance? You're going to be put in situations where you're required to have your faith tested so that you become perseverant. And then what does great gain mean? Okay, I like that great gain part. That means I'm going to have a wonderful retirement with lots of money. How would you, how, but here's, a, we define great gain as that you're going to, here's how the gospels define great gain. It's knowing Jesus. People selling everything that they have to be able to know Jesus. People giving up on everything in order to know Jesus. Great gain is knowing Jesus. It's not the temporal stuff of this world. So godliness plus contentment equals great gain. And some of you come up, Tim Keller calls this, you know, we want a pat answer. Some of you, but there, is a, there are some pat answers in the Bible. Yeah, okay, I'll give it to you. There's a pat answer, for instance, about murder, Right? You're sitting at home contemplating murder. What does the Bible say? Don't murder. But that's not what you're at home contemplating, most of you. I know some of you work in places that you might do that. Okay? But that's not what we're contemplating. Instead, we're contemplating how to get through this challenge, how to get through this suffering, how to get through this pain. How do I deal with my 94 and 90-year-old parents? One has Alzheimer's, and she's in the severe uh, stage of Alzheimer's. How do I deal with that? How do I deal with my family? How do I deal with my marriage? How do I deal with work? How do I deal with my coworkers? How do I deal with my boss? How do I deal with my kids? How do I deal with the neighborhood? How do I deal with school? How do I deal with this professor who's freaked out? How do I deal with any of these things? No pat answers. Instead, know the character of God so that you become the character of God and you're conformed to Christ. Um, there's this book, Stuart Scott wrote this book. It's a great book called, uh, this is not the ESPN commentator who recently passed away. This is the Bible scholar. Stuart Scott wrote this book called The Exemplary Husband. And, and one of the best things he says in there, because I've experienced this too, is he says, when, when, when husbands and wives come to me for counseling, here's what they want. Each spouse wants the other spouse to be conformed to their image. That's what they want. And they want, they want to sort of maneuver the pastor in, on their side. Okay, And he says, the truth is, 
that that marriage has no chance until both spouses decide that the goal is to become conformed to Christ. That's what we're supposed to be looking for here. This is so very desperately important. But it's not just about the word that Jesus stood on. He also stood on prayer. In Hebrews 5, we're told, in the days of his flesh, Jesus op- offered up prayers with suppl- and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So it's not just God's word, but we need to be immersed in prayer as well. I find myself saying way too often in, in the midst of situations, well, I've done everything I can do, might as well pray. Why isn't that at the forefront of my situation? Okay. And it says that in the midst of this, the angels were ministering to Jesus. Literally, it means that they were giving him sustenance in the midst of his fasting and the stress that was being caused by Satan. Because we know, again, from the other Gospels that he was out there fasting for 40 days. How many of you have not eaten for 40 days? Kind of rough. Okay. But one of the things I like about this is how often do you and I think we're alone when we're going through something really tough and yet God is there? He's just not doing it the way we think he, should, he ought to do it. And so during those times when we're going through something hard and we think we're alone, it's really, really helpful to remember that God is the great provider and he's the great protector. But he provides and protects in ways that you and I often don't understand or realize when we're in the middle of it. Very often, God will protect us by what we think is not providing for us. Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get that deal? Why didn't I get that commission? Well, God has a a view that you don't have and he's actually protecting you in the midst of that. And sometimes he's providing for you through your challenges and my challenges. So, So look at our circumstances as him protecting and providing. That's the first point. Jesus' humanity and temptation and ours. And here's our second Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God and the gospel is the kingdom of God, repent and believe. Now some of you are like, wait a minute, what about John the Baptist being arrested? Are we ever going to talk more about John the Baptist? And the answer is yes. It's going to be an entire sermon devoted to him later on in chapter 6. So we're going to get to that. John was arrested. It's a tragic tale. We'll get to that. But Jesus says, here's the kingdom of God. This is what's interesting here. This is interesting because the Jewish understanding of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, was that the kingdom would be fulfilled in them. That they were going to be the kingdom of God. Their nation, it, was, it, was a, it was a nationalism of sorts. They were going to be the ones that fulfilled the kingdom of God. But Jesus says something extraordinarily radical here. He says the kingdom of God is fulfilled in me. I am the king and therefore the kingdom is me. And you may enter the kingdom of God through me, but I am the kingdom of God. And here's why this is so important. The truth is, you and I would really prefer what we really want is we, we just want Jesus to join and affirm our kingdom. That's what we really want. We want Jesus to fulfill our agenda, to work our strategy, and to serve us as we reign. That's kind of what we want. We want the biblical story to find its way into our story. And the reality is that Jesus is the king and his is the kingdom and it's our story that therefore submits to his story and to the biblical story. And if you and I, if we never get this right, we will live the rest of our lives always frustrated, perplexed, angry, reactive, anxious, 
depressed, and we will be looking for love and peace and hope and comfort in all the wrong places. This is the kingdom. And the only way to be a part of this kingdom, he says, is to repent and believe, to take ourselves off the throne. And this is absolutely essential. Again, it goes back to the very beginning. Again, it looks at Genesis 1 and 2 where humanity was living with God in his kingdom in this wonderful, beautiful paradise. But then the fall comes and we start to look for our kingdom in so many other places. And we say, well, what does that word repent really mean? And, and most of you know, it's, you've heard this before. It means to stop and turn around. It means to turn away. And that is true. Yes, that's what it means. But if, if you only limit it to that, you, have, you, you don't have a, a fulfilled understanding of the word repent. Very often people who look at repentance just as merely turning around, we, we end up seeing repentance merely as behavior modification. And behavior modification is going to get us nowhere in the kingdom of God. We, we can be really, really moral people and still not have true repentance and still not really know Jesus. Repentance, rather, is a complete immersion in and change of your identity and your life. It's a complete reorientation. But it's not rooted in who we are. Instead, it's rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. And here's the other thing about this word repentance that I think is really important. You and I as human beings, and again, just watch TV, read stuff, whatever. You know this is true. You and I, we're all, all, we're, we're all asking the big questions. We're all on this search for truth. We're all on this search for meaning and purpose. And we're asking these big questions. When Jesus says repent and believe, you know what that means? It means the search is over. And that scares the snot out of a lot of us. It does. Because so many of us have found our life and our identity in the search itself. We like the search. We think it's cool to hang around and talk about the search and ask those big questions. And Jesus says, the search is over. Now come and live in me and through me and by me in my kingdom. The search is over. And what scares us about that should actually be something that gives us great joy. Repentance is not rooted in a new philosophy or in five principles for defeating sin, but in a real person who is also the Lord. And it's not just a one-time event, but like I said, it's an immersion into new life. You know, we had these babies up here and we were dedicating them this morning. And you know that moment when the baby comes out, the baby's born and it it takes that first breath. Sometimes you got to smack it a little bit to get it through that, but it takes that first breath. (sighs) Is that it? No, the baby continues to breathe, right? You and I, in that same way, repentance is a present tense verb. It means that we repent and we keep on repenting. We we, we repent and we get that moment of new life and salvation and conversion, but then we continue to live in this life of repentance. Martin Luther, the great reformer from hundreds of years ago, says the whole of the Christian life is one of, of repentance. It's all present tense verbs. Here's a, here's, this helped me when I saw this uh, graphic. When you and I first contemplate the reality of God and Jesus and his holiness and our sinfulness, there's a graphic. There it is. When we come to that moment where the spirit works in our hearts and says, okay, you need to understand, God is perfect and I'm sinful. So there's this huge separation. And then what happens? We come to Christ and the cross And that reconciles us, that redeems us, that brings us together. But here's what I found, and I know many of you have found also in your life as well. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you're conformed to his image, the more you realize that God is way more perfect and holy than you ever thought, and you and I are way more sinful than you and I ever thought. And so we end up with this. 
Well, let me tell you something. If we don't continue to repent and we don't continue to be conformed to Jesus, if we don't continue to grow in Christ, this is what happens. See that? Instead, we must continue to grow and then this is what happens and what, what should happen. Go ahead. The cross just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Present tense verbs. I used to be around a church where people would walk around and had that saying, it just used to drive me crazy. Just do your best and Jesus will do the rest. <laughs> uh, he's doing it all. And we need to submit to him. And it is this repentance that leads us ultimately to turn to faith and trust and belief in what is genuinely true. The gospel, the good news that God has sent Jesus, the Savior, but also it's the good news about God who loves us and wants us to be reconciled to him. Last week I talked about, you know, remember I talked last week about how, those of you who are here, I talked about how religion, most re, all religions really are, 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 the idea is that man is reaching up to God, trying to find God, trying to be good enough for God, but the gospel is actually God reaching down to us and meeting us where we are. And in the midst of our sinfulness, he's pulling us up. That's why it's radically different. But what we didn't talk about last week is also what people believe religion is supposed to be for. Most people, when you bring up religion, their understanding of what religion is, is that, yeah, maybe that I would connect with God, but the purpose of that is so that my circumstances would be better, my strategies would work, my agenda would be fulfilled, and my little kingdom would reign supreme. That's essentially what most people think of of religion. And I know for some of you this will cheapen the illustration, but I can't help but think of that Seinfeld episode where George, George had a, those of you that know Seinfeld, what an awful life, right? Do you remember that episode where he's sitting there in the coffee shop in Monks and he says to Jerry, you know, I've had it. It seems like every single one of my instincts was wrong. And so what's he going to do? I'm just going to do the opposite. Whatever my instinct is, I'm going to do the exact opposite. And so he started to live this life of opposite. He did everything opposite of what his instinct was. And what happened? He got this beautiful girlfriend. He got a job with with the Yankees and his life got better. Circumstantially, his life got better. And he comes over to Jerry's apartment one day and and he's just, he's busting. He says, Jerry, I'm busting. I've got this girl. I've got a job with the Yankees. It's a dream come true. And he looks at me and goes, Jerry, this is my religion. And, and, and with that one line, he affirms what most people think about religion, that the religion, the religion is to connect with God, yes, but that's secondary to our circumstances being better. The problem is, you read the Bible, do you get any sense in the Bible that that's, is, that's what it's about here on earth? Any sense at all? No. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. There's a wet blanket on George's opposite. Jesus says, I came to cause division. Again, James, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. (sighs) I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because I I just think this would help. I, I just thought of this. Psalm 73. Let me read Psalm 73 to you. Oh my goodness. Here's a great example of what I'm talking about right here. It's a long psalm, but just listen. Let me read it to you. We need, we, most of the psalms are written by David. We, this, this one was written by Asaph. We need more psalms by Asaph, I'm telling you. Here's what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, right? God is good to those of us who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For the wicked had no pangs until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. 
They are never in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of us mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn, to, turn back to, to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how could God possibly know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, they're now mocking God. And the righteous one, the religious one, is sitting there going, my life is miserable and I love God. They don't love God at all. And in fact, they're mocking God and their life is better than mine circumstantially. That's what he's saying. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Lord, you, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I, pricked, when I was pricked in your heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will, re- you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. That's the truth. That's the gospel contained in Psalm 73. It's knowing who God is. The true gospel calls us to know God and gives us the love and power to live as God calls, even in the midst of temptation, pain, and suffering. And the gospel, again, that word, that Greek word is euangelion. It's, it's a conflation of two Greek words. Angelos, which means news, and you, which means joyful. Literally, gospel means news that brings great joy. Tim Keller writes this about that word. Right there in that word alone, you can see the difference between Christianity and all other religions, worldviews, or codes. The essence of other religions and philosophies is advice, but Christianity is news, good news. Other religions teach, this is what you have to do in order to connect with God. But the gospel says, this is what has already been done for you in history. For you! This is how Jesus lived and died to earn uh, the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It is the proclamation of the joyful news of your salvation by God. Here you go. Again, I'm going to close with this. The, the, the contrast between Adam and Jesus again. God comes to Adam in the garden and he says, Adam, there's this tree that I want you to be obedient and faithful about. And what did Adam do? He ate from it. And we all died and fell and were corrupted as a result. God the Father then comes to Jesus the Son. He says, I want you to be obedient to the tree. And I want you to be faithful to the tree. The tree of your crucifixion. And Jesus was. And as a result, we have life. 
we are saved and redeemed. I'm going to pray. Jim's going to come and lead us into our time of response. God, we thank you that your son did that for us. Let us just be aware of that. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us into the conformity of your son. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.